Well, greetings. We are glad to be with you whenever it is that you find yourself listening to this podcast. I am Sarah. And I am Christian. And together we are going to be opening up and exploring the book, Stand Your Ground, Black Bodies and the Justice of God by theologian Kelly Brown Douglas. Uh, So just a little bit of an overview of where this book will go. Uh, for those of you who haven't yet engaged with the text, uh, this book itself, she writes it in the wake of the killing of Trayvon Martin. And for those of you who don't know that story, uh, she begins there in the book on February 26, 2012, when a young man, Trayvon Martin, was walking home, uh, well, actually to his relatives, he was visiting his father, and there was a neighborhood watch captain who decided that he was a suspicious body and ended up shooting and killing Trayvon Martin. This animated not only for um, Kelly Brown Douglas, but I think for many people in our country, it animated uh, for some, especially white Americans, a deeper awakening to racial injustice in our country. And for many black Americans and brown Americans, it was another moment in a long litany of a history of racialized terror and violence. And Kelly Brown Douglas as a mother, as a Christian and as a theologian is undone by this moment. And um, her book is an attempt to deal with, how could this be possible? What's operative? What is not who killed him, but the what that killed Trayvon Martin? And so that's what she's doing in this book. And for us, as we're wrestling with this text during our Faith and Justice series, we wanted to turn to this text as uh, an invitation from a fellow Christian and theologian as a way for us to continue to open up and explore issues of racial justice and our world today. So this book she then writes as a mother, as a black woman, as a theologian, as a Christian, as a United States citizen, like all of pastor, as a pastor. Yeah. Yes. And, you know, so she divides the book into, there's two significant parts um, of the book. And what she does is she begins the book by laying out what she names as, you know, it's an Anglo-Saxon myth and looking at American Uh, exceptionalism and the way that basically whiteness has functioned and been constructed in our country. And in this first part of the book, the underlying assumption that she is taking a look at is, you know, what made possible Trayvon being killed on a Florida sidewalk. And in chapter one is where she really does a deeper historical uh, building of her case of how the Anglo-Saxon myth was shaped and how whiteness as it's come to function in our world and in our country as opposed to blackness has come to be and how there's this wedding between like faith and God and the Anglo-Saxon and how this myth gets all spun together to create a sort of way of being in the world that allows for exceptionalism and therefore also requires kind of a payment for it, which is black bodies and blackness and non-whiteness. And in chapter two, then she does some more exploring around how black bodies 
are perpetually chattel and non-persons and how this functions and comes to be. And the way that she then, again, in each of these chapters, she'll connect this with Trevon and his story. And chapter three, then she looks more deeply at the manifest destiny. And that's what we'll take more of a look at with you on Tuesday, December 1st at 6.30 p.m. But here in this third chapter, she uh, outlines and, and does a little bit more exploration of the manifest destiny and the way that this has led to a just war of sorts on black bodies and looking at Jim Crow, the history of that and how this feeds a stand your ground culture that is present in our world today. So having really outlined the what and the what is made possible, the killing and murder of Trevon Martin, she then in part two, she makes a turn looking to God and to theology and doing this wrestling as a person of faith with how to make sense and how to make meaning of what's going on in these spaces and with not just Trayvon, but with the many, the litany really of black children who have been killed. And so in this, uh, she, she's really wanting to say like, God, where are you? God, what do you speak into this? So here in chapter four and, and at various points throughout the book, she references the like deep guttural devastation and betrayal that black communities of faith came to church that Sunday after the acquittal of Trevon Martin's killer and the ways in which though faith in God has also sustained and fueled the black experience of racism and of the way that there's been continued violence done against them and just that that long arc and narrative in the Bible of God's freedom and longing for freedom for all people and that how that's functioned both within the Exodus tradition, but how that tradition itself has been so important within the black church. Chapter five, then she uh, moves to look at the connection between Jesus and Trayvon and asking, where was God? You know, just like Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? She looks at Trayvon and asking where God was in that space. Chapter six, then she takes the turn to how bearing witness and testifying has functioned inside of the black church and looks at Martin Luther King Jr.'s I have a dream speech and how our own narrative inside of the United States of exceptionalism has um, impacted our way of discerning the message of God and this time in Stand Your Ground and in our world and she ends the book then, particularly speaking from her mother's per her perspective as a mother. And what is this done to her to raise black children in this time and in this world? And she, you know, she even at the beginning of the book turns to Obama saying like, when after Trayvon was killed, Obama's interviewed and he said this, if I had had a son, it could have been my son. And, and so she turns to that place. And so in doing this and in turning to Trevon and then turning to stand your ground culture and the what of what has constructed this. She's really developing, uh, I think, a robust theological critique of our current time and of racism in our world. And uh, one of the things that we talked about briefly before getting on here as well is that this is one of those moments, a little bit like the color of law, where we can live in a world and just it's how it is <laughs> but she's like but this is not the way it has to be yes this is how we got here but this was created and if this was created and this is not what god would desire we can also 
we can change it and we can destroy it and build a new a world in which livability for all of us is actually possible. Um, I've heard Kelly Brown Douglas in person. I have a lot of respect for her and I just would encourage you, some parts of this book are a little thick to get through, but I would invite you to read it and to remain open, to listen, to be prayerfully discerning, to come with humility and with your whole self, just as she comes with her whole self as a mother, as a pastor, as a theologian, as a Christian, as a black woman, like come with your whole self and look for how God's invitations might be speaking and inviting not just you, but us then to be the church and to show up in the world. So those are just some, I guess, initial thoughts, Christian, what do you think? Is there more you would want to say for folks as they're entering the book, uh, things to be paying attention to, et cetera? That was a great um, overview. And um, there are a couple of things that, as you were talking, that struck me. Uh, one is um, that the, I think the structure of the book tells us that the, the mythology um, that has played such a significant role in the concrete material violence done to black bodies like Trayvon Martin and others um, is itself a theological problem, right? It's a constructed myth that has, um, in which Christian theology and Christian theologians have played a significant role. Um, and not just any Christian theologians, by the way, congregationalist figures show up. Um, and because it's a theological problem, it requires a theological response, right? So if we wanna read other books, like we read The Color of Law, right? Part of the argument or the implicit notion there was it's elite, this is a legal problem and it requires legal redress. Um, and here, I think we have a similar kind of thing where this is clearly a, a theological problem um, and needs a theological response. And so the second half of the book is really a profound meditation, I think on some of the theological uh, postures required. Like it's not gonna be enough to just say you have faith um, in God, because there's a lot of people who had faith in God who actually contributed to, to weaving this myth. It's really what God are we talking about, right? And it's not just going to be enough to say it's from the Bible, right? She makes that quite clear, I think, in both of those chapters. Um, so, uh, and I think one of the things to me that's interesting, just in terms of, of being familiar with the wider literature, um, there's two things. One is that in a sense, this fits in, I think, with some of the most interesting stuff, you know, that's been coming out over the last 20 years, um, which has precedence before, but it's really become much more sophisticated. Um, and I'm thinking of like the work of Jay Carter and others um, that maybe have certain kind of problematic elements that, that have been critiqued or whatnot in the academy, but still the title of Jay's book race a theological account, you know, is sort of the tone uh, in a sense. Um, I think the other is, uh, yeah, th that knowledge of that wider conversation. There have been a lot of um, critiques of American exceptionalism, 
and manifest destiny. And they have typically been critiques um, that we might call political theological critiques, right? That point out that these ideas are themselves um, theological heresies. But most of the time, those critiques do not deal with the central place that race and racialization plays in constructing the myth. And I think this is one of the real contributions um, of her work here, even though it's a short book, you know, and there are going to be probably other people who are going to do even more detailed kind of work than, than she does. I, she has to sort of glide over some things. Um, it's the realization that, yeah, we're, we live, and this is why I like to say we live in a world of many gods. There are competing mythologies that are constantly um, coming at us and in, in, in oftentimes implicitly, you know, in the movies that we watch and the, um, the music that we listen to. Um, and so uh, this notion of manifest destiny, that chapter, chapter three, um, that's just in the air in the 19th century, right? And once you start to bore down on it, you see, okay, yeah, this is clearly a justification, um, an ideological attempt to justify uh, continued dispossession of land and continued um, uh, suppression and dispossession and extrication. I mean, we can utilize a number of different adjectives and verbs of black and brown bodies, right? That they are, but basically what they deserve to be is to have labor extracted from them. And I think that process is what we saw, what you see if you look at the very beginning of the story of, you know, the colonial period, it, it doesn't necessarily go away. It just kind of reinvents itself. Um, and that reinvention, uh, there's a number of scholars who put their fingers on that. So she does that and she does it, but she does it like as a theologian, you know, so she's, she, she understands sort of that, those processes and history, but she has the eyes, especially towards what are the Christian doctrines and also like, how do you survive something like that as a person of faith? Like, I mean, I think, I think it's a legit, it's such a legit question. Like once you're kind of brought face to face with the role that the Bible played or the role that the person of Jesus played in legitimating people being able to exploit other people, how do you not throw up your hands and just walk away from the whole thing? You know, why is there a black church? It's kind of one of the questions right, at, at the base of, of this. And I think she gives an answer to that, you know, that, that and, and she raises all kinds of other fascinating, um, I think, questions that she doesn't necessarily directly wrestle with, but um, it really is a challenging, it's challenging that way, I think, as a, as, a, as a read. I think it's relatively, you know, it's not too hard to read through, but it will, definitely raise a lot of important questions for folks. Mm. So. Thank you, Christian. Yeah. You know, Christian, I, I so appreciate what you, what you've been sharing. And it's so interesting for those of you who are listening, you know, Christian and I, before we each read uh, the text or parts of the text, depending upon who's doing what and has going on uh, before we come into this space. You know, and so I came in today knowing that there were some different things I wanted to talk about, right? Like I figured we'd do an overview of the text. 
Uh, I had a couple ideas of things, some things I wanted to talk about. Christian had some ideas about some things he wanted to talk about. This happens every time, right? Where we come in, we've read it, we have some thoughts, we talk about where we want to go. But one of the things I love, and I think this is the thing about community and what happens in the space between all of us as we're showing up, part of what I love about congregationalism is that it's not just what I show up with, it's what the spirit does in the space between. Because as you're sharing, Christian, I think one of the things that hit me is it is it reminds me so much of the echoes of what is going on inside of a lot of Bonhoeffer's work. And I think sometimes it is far easier, particularly for white Christians in the United States, for us to read Bonhoeffer and to hear his critiques because he's in Germany, right? He's speaking of a different situation and of a different reality. And yet, I think there are some deep resonance spaces between Kelly Brown Douglas and what she's doing in her work and how you were just naming that and what Bonhoeffer is doing. And that there's a similar sort of devastation. And I, I don't know if this resonates with your own tears, but I'll say it for myself. That I think there's a similar devastation that Kelly Brown Douglas and, and lament that she is naming in her wrestling in this text that Bonhoeffer is wrestling with at various points throughout his work when it's named, you know, the cost of discipleship of cheap grace versus costly grace. And she's articulating that differently here in the text, but it's a sense of what do you do with the ways that Jesus has been employed to enable genocide? Like what happens? And I think this for me, Christian, as a, as a Christian, as someone who loves Jesus, as a white Christian in the United States, this is a place of my own profound devastation and grief. The question of what do we do with the failure of discipleship? What, what do we do with the reality that this thing that is supposed to be the gospel of good news can get employed and twisted in order to make men, and I'm using that with quotes, gods, right? Because that's part of what she's outlining in this book is it's the, I'll use Bonhoeffer's language here, which she's not doing, but I am, right? She, it's the cheap grace that actually becomes the payment for entrance to the society of the gods, where I am now like God because I have received Jesus and now, I, as a white Anglo-Saxon, if I can just figure out how to take on that identity properly, I will become like the gods. Instead of the way of the Nazarene, instead of the way of Jesus, which the way of Jesus is actually always supposed to be, have been about the way of love, about the way of a costly grace that takes and asks our whole life, right? But in so doing, it becomes the like lifeblood for both our own true life and for that of all of creation and all of God's children. That was the point since the beginning, right? Like that's what it's always supposed to have been about. And I think that's part of what she is getting at in this book as well, is both that profound failure and the violence that has happened that has um, perverted Christian discipleship and, and theology, and yet the life and critique that is possible beyond that 
for another way of being and another way of being human together. And so I think her book in a way, like when we come to these conversations around race and racism, I know that it can be really painful. It can be devastating. Um, you might not wanna go there. You might find yourself feeling defensive. Again, I think this is a, one of those places of the calls of Christian discipleship, which says, as the song says, to, find, to come and die and find that I might truly live. And so when she's critiquing the myth of the Anglo-Saxon, it's not just like, hey, white people, I'm going to kill you and you're all going to die. It's like, no, like, let us together deconstruct this like death dealing system that has lied to us about even the wages. I mean, the wages of this sin is all of our death. And so let us come and actually die to that, that we can be raised to join in the cause of God's project on earth, which is actually humanity and life abundant for everyone. And I think her book is one of those offerings of what uh, costly grace looks like and has to look like in our time. Otherwise it's actually not grace. And I just was, I had been coming wanting to talk about that, but just when you were talking, I was like, oh wow, yeah. So I don't know well, about I that. Yeah, I think, um, I actually think mentioning Bonhoeffer here is completely apropos in regard to sort of what you're getting at, which is, um, I think sometimes when we get into the literature, we could, we could get lost with thinking that like in black theology, and I think it'd be fair to say that, you know, Kelly Brown Douglas is in the womanist, you know, theological camp and, and black theology, she's interacting both with womanist theologians like Dolores Williams and black theologians like James Cone, and she's a black woman, right? And her own experience. But you can sometimes particularly read, say someone like Cone, and you might think that like, uh, that white literally is phenotype. It just has to do with skin and black is, you know, a different phenotype, but, but the reality is that it's a different way of seeing the world. Right. And that's the point. And that's why Cone said Bonhoeffer became a black theologian. And when people said, why, what do you mean? He said, he, he came to see the world from the, from the viewpoint of the underside of the outsider. I can't help but <laughs> I'm reminded of the sermon from last week that I preached, right? To see the world differently and learn to sing a new song, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and that can be very hard because it challenges very deep assumptions. And I don't even know if assumptions is the right word. It's because some of these things are not even thought about. They're precognitive. There are warm feelings that we have associated with certain ideas and people. And then to find out that, you know, that not everything that came from them, I'm not saying that everything is, is put in question, but not everything that came from them is ultimately mm -hmm. squareable with, right. with the gospel. Right. I mean, I, I, the way I like to put the question that you put earlier is how on earth did the good news become such bad news for so many people? Um, you know, and that, and then we, when we begin to realize that that's actually been the case and what that means, um, it, it requires then hard work to try to unlearn certain things, um, and, and begin to see the world differently. And I think this is then why 
the second half of the book is so interesting and important because this is an initial offering from her, you know, so it's not just the deconstructive work. that's really important. It's also the constructive work on the other side, the reconstructive work, right? This whole chapter on the freedom of God. And, 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 and this is where I like to say, and I'm just following her, honestly, and others like Karl Barth and Bonhoeffer and, and Cohn and whatnot. Um, it's not just that God is free. It's the way that God is free. You know, it's not just that God lives. It's the way that God lives. It's not just that God is powerful. It's the way that God is powerful. And even that, of course, requires even further, you know, careful attending. Because as she says, there are, there are places in scripture that are just texts of terror, right? You have to, we have to learn how to handle and interpret carefully. Um, and that's part of discipleship. That's part of that. It's not just something that's easy to do. Um, and I certainly don't have it figured out. Um, any more than anybody else probably listening to this podcast has it figured out. We live, honestly, and I, I love the idea that, you know, there's like, you can have a simple faith. That's absolutely right. But it's not simplistic. Um, you, we can live, we live in a complex, complicated world, really messed up world. And I, if you've been reading any of these books at all, if you've been watching the news, <laughs> you know that that's the truth deep down, right? To your shoes, to, to the soles of your feet. You know that's true. And you know that what is going to be required is something that's durable in the face of that. And I, I think these are the kind, these kinds of texts that invite us into that sort of way of thinking about and reflecting on and, um, and, then, and then imagining a different, uh, trying to imagine and, and also trying to, to, to find, you know, together as a community with mm -hmm. others, um, a different world. Yeah, I really, I really appreciate that. And I think I just want to echo that last part too of that sense of invitation because even in thinking about what you were just saying and what we've been attempting to do here in these spaces, like we're here because we're pastors in this church and because we're a part of this community. And if anything in the last number of years, my faith actually has become more simple to what you said. Like there are like basically like two or three things I would die on. One, everyone's made in God's image, that God is love, and that the call to follow Jesus is the call to love God and love our neighbors as ourselves. And for me, it actually fundamentally boils down to love. And yet to love in our world is one of the most profoundly complex, lifelong journeys and quests that you could ever take up. <laughs> It's a brilliant and painful and terrible and wonderful adventure that asks everything and also can give everything, you know, if we will but let it. And this is where, as we come to some of these texts, and, and maybe I'll just be like, I think what I'm trying to get at here in a way is that I am, 
both, I wanted to say done with, but also like heartbroken by and longing for a world in which we, we turn off the lines of rhetoric we hear from our politicians. And having followed after Christ the King Sunday, sing a new song, we get real about our own call to discipleship. We get real about the things that we profess. What would it what would it matter if we gained the whole world but gave up our souls? And part of what she's arguing for and saying is listen, for a bunch of folks who were terrified, who lived in a world with scarce resources, y'all learned that you could gain the whole world, quote unquote, by becoming white, right? That first chapter, that image will not leave me of that Italian dude running down the street yelling, I'm white, I'm white. You know, like, because what that is, is that's the language of recognition. Like, I'm not going to get killed. I can stay alive. Like, our bones and our DNA remember when we were, like, feudal, living on terrible nothingness of substance. Like, very few of us were, like, the rulers of all the things and had all the money. But then over time, people conspire to say, okay, how can I make sure I get mine? And so then I need to create a new group who I'm not going to be included in who I can step on. But that just isn't the gospel. Like that is not Jesus' kingdom. That's not how it works. And so this call to discipleship is really to put to death the things of the flesh. And what is white supremacy and racism, but stuff of the flesh, <laughs> you know? And that's where we're called to like gird ourselves, get out that breastplate of righteousness and the sword of truth and all these sorts of things. And I'm going to get all Awana eon, you know, you know, like Awana uh, is a little kid's thing where you memorize Bible verses. What is this if that's not the call? And might we not listen to the prophets of our time? Let us not be people who harden our hearts again, but let us be a people who instead of needing to turn to those things that have kept us safe and protected, we come to the feet of Jesus again through the invitation of people like Kelly Brown Douglas, that we might become more Christian tomorrow than we were yesterday, that we might become more of a people who are known by what? They will know we are Jesus' disciples by how we love. And racism is not loving, period. Like it's not loving for anyone. And so it just makes me think of, and then this is not a Bible verse and then I'll be quiet. There's a poem from Rumi and he says, he says something about the field out there beyond the ideas of right doing and wrong doing there is a field meet me there. And that has been just like this reverberation for me for this last week meet me there. Like let's meet each other in that land that I think God has always envisioned for us, which is the land of freedom. It's the garden. It's where we all can walk around knowing that there's enough for all of us. And we refuse these lies of the world in which Cain and Abel killed each other because they thought there wasn't enough to go around. And we instead live the kingdom. And that's why we're doing this. So let's get disciples, Amen. folks. <laughs> Amen. I know it's hard. So folks, we will be praying with and for you. We're glad that you've shown up and you're engaging. And we'll be back at it on December 1st, 6.30 p.m. on Zoom. You can find the info on the website. Copies of the book are available at church or from your local independent bookseller. 
uh, but we do have a lot of copies at church still. So if you want to get one of those, you can do that. Let's go in prayerfully. Let's go in with a posture of saying, I want to come and learn from the one who wants to take up, take the things that are making me weary. And this book is about a woman who knows the weariness and is being honest about it. And I'm weary of that world too. Thank you for being here, Christian. Thanks for being here as well. And we'll look forward Absolutely. to seeing you all. Thanks to all of our listeners. We love uh, hearing from you. If you ever want to drop us a line, feel free to do so. So then maybe go with this blessing. May the God of all peace and all freedom and the God of all of us be the God who might meet us and invite us into life that is abundant and free for all of creation. God, may you give us the eyes to see and the hearts that are open that we might hear the cries of all of your children. And in so doing that, we might be your disciples, people who are known as followers of the way. And may that way be marked by love. It's in Christ's name that we do all these things, or at least we attempt to. <laughs> Amen. Amen. <laughs>